hope you all had a great Thanksgiving, uh, a good opportunity to gather together with family and friends, uh, and usually it's people that you haven't really seen in a while, and so they might have changed, and so maybe you don't recognize them, like, man, cousin Gomer's really let himself go, or the cousins have really grown, I, I can't believe it's been so long since I've seen you. Uh, over a period of time, people change, and when you're not consistently connected with them, your own relationship to them also changes. What we're going to find in today's sermon text, and really throughout the Gospel of John, is that we need to be continually pursuing a relationship with Christ, pursuing an understanding of who He is, and accurately understanding what His mission on earth was and what that means for us. So what we've seen so far in John's Gospel is that Jesus is the eternal God who has taken on flesh. He has always existed as the eternal Word of God, the Son of God but now has come into the world to bring light and life to a dark and dying world. And anyone who understands who he is, who believes in him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is given the ability, given the right, to be called a child of God. And in so doing, have eternal life. And so John the Baptist is the first person who is sort of on the scene, not to be confused with John the Evangelist, who wrote the gospel according to John, John the Baptist was the first on the scene here to testify about who Jesus is. And then John started encouraging people that were following him, well, you guys actually should go follow the lamb. Behold him, go follow him. That's really what John the Baptist came to do is to point others to follow Jesus. And so Jesus starts calling his first disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. Uh, each of them are coming after him, recognizing, beginning to understand who Jesus is, and so now they're following him. They're recognizing by their own words, their own confession, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the King of Israel. And so they're beginning to see, they're beginning to understand, and now they're beginning to follow him. And as we get into the second chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is now beginning to testify about himself. So we're going to see what Jesus says about himself. So here's what we have in chapter 2. I want to suggest that there are two events and three responses. There's two events that happen here in this text, and then there's three responses to who Jesus is and what Jesus does. The first event is when Jesus turns water into wine at that, that wedding in Cana. The second event is when Jesus cleansed or judged the temple by running out the money changers. Uh, there are other signs or miracles that Jesus has uh, performed during this time, but we don't have record of them. So there's other signs that people are seeing as well, in addition to turning water into wine. And then there's three responses. So you've got the response of the disciples who are beginning to understand, they're beginning to believe in him, they're beginning to pursue him. Then there's the response of the religious leaders, those Jews who are misunderstanding who Jesus is, what he's come to do, they're resisting Jesus. And then there's a third category I want to suggest that there are many others that we read about at the end of chapter 2, many others who are misunderstanding Jesus and yet still are pursuing him in faith. Remember, John would have us understand who Jesus is. This is his main driving point with this gospel. Understand who he is and then watch other accounts. Watch these other people interact with Jesus as they are confronted with him and notice how they respond, whether they receive him, whether they reject him. 
So if that's what John wants us to do, that's what our sermon is going to guide us to do. The big idea from chapter two of John's gospel is this. Trust deeply in Jesus who purifies his people and restores pure worship. Trust deeply in Jesus who purifies his people and restores pure worship. We'll look at this in three sections. First, Jesus' good wine points to a new way of purification, verses 1 through 11. Second, Jesus' resurrection will point to his authority over the temple, verses 12 through 22. And then third, Jesus isn't fooled by superficial faith. And those final verses from 23 to 25. So that's the plan. Let's pray. Father, it is so good. We are grateful, even coming off of the heels of an opportunity to to take time to slow down and express gratitude to you for the many graces and gifts that you've given to us. One of those great gifts is the fellowship of one another. And so we're grateful to gather here this morning to be encouraged by brothers and sisters who stand and confess and sing the same truths, to be reminded about who your Messiah is and what he means to us. We pray that you would help us now by your spirit. Invigorate our hearts and our minds so that we might leave here even more grateful than we did when we came in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Jesus is good wine points to a new way of purification, verses 1 through 11. You know, this, this uh, account of turning water into the wine is fairly familiar to people, and so we can actually kind of get lost in the details or even the drama about this whole thing and, and the way that it plays out and kind of miss what John is actually trying to convince us of. He tells us what the point of this whole thing is in verse 11. Did you notice this in verse 11? It says, Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So that's what the whole thing was about, the manifestation of Jesus' glory and the belief of his disciples. So if that's the goal, let's keep that in focus as we're considering this account. Here's what we're meant to understand. In this first event, this first sign, Jesus has the authority to usher in the new covenant. Jesus has the authority to usher in the new covenant. This miraculous transformation of water into wine shows us that that old way of purification by washing with water was going to be replaced with the blood of the lamb. Okay, so with that in mind, let's walk through this and see if I can convince you that that's what John's argument is. Let's read, starting just in verse one through five. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So this must have been a pretty big celebration. Uh, Jesus and even his own disciples were invited to it. The whole village, perhaps, was invited to this wedding celebration. Uh, this, this wedding ceremony might, been a, might have been for some close family or friends of Jesus, perhaps. 
because it seems that Mary, his mother, feels some responsibility for the fact that they've run out of wine. Uh, She's concerned either for the, the good name of the folks who are hosting this wedding or even for herself if she was responsible for it. Wedding receptions during this time could have lasted as long as a week. Big celebrations. And the wine here is real wine. It was not Welch's, but it was probably watered down. Uh, maybe a half or a quarter strength of strong wine, which is spoken of elsewhere in Scripture, a different kind of thing. With the whole village there here at this celebration, there might have been an embarrassment that would come upon the family who is hosting this event. How, How did you run out of wine? How did you not plan well for this? How did you run out of provisions? And so the Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, approaches Jesus and lets him know that they've run out of wine. And we have to sort of read in between the lines a little bit to try to understand what was Mary hoping that Jesus was going to accomplish. Was she expecting him to miraculously provide more wine? It doesn't specifically say that. She just tells him about the circumstance. But it seems based on Jesus' response to his mother, that it does seem like she's hinting at something like that. His response, of course, is interesting. Jesus' response to his mother might appear rude to us at first. I don't think I would let my kids speak to my wife that way. He calls her woman, and then he asks what the situation has to do with him. We need to recognize, in this time, it was not disrespectful. It was actually a term of respect for Jesus to call his mother woman. It was a polite way of addressing women, but it was noteworthy here. It's noteworthy for him to use this own term for his own mother. It is signifying something here. I don't think we should understand him to be rebuking Mary at all, but it does seem that there's an intentional distancing respectfully from her as he's beginning his ministry. His response says, uh, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. All through John's gospel, that phrase of the hour, of my hour, of his hour, comes up a lot. And in the instances that it occurs, it refers to Jesus' crucifixion, the time of his glorification through crucifixion and resurrection. It is the hour of his suffering and death. Notice the way that John uses it in chapter three, verses, uh, chapter seven, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, that is Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Notice then again in chapter eight, verse 20. These words he, Jesus, spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then in John chapter 12, as we see the sense of the shifting between his teaching and the beginning of his passion, chapter 12, verse 23, as he's now beginning for his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, Jesus says, he answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And of course, he's referring to his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. So when Jesus says, the hour has not come yet, this is what he's talking about. This hour is what Jesus came in the flesh for. The hour was the very central purpose, the culmination of Jesus's life mission, to be glorified by being raised on a cross 
and then to ascended, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and in so doing, bring glory to God the Father. In other words, at this point, this very first sign, Jesus isn't really ready to bring so much attention to himself with a miracle that would potentially get him arrested. My hour has not yet come. So Mary's concern is that she wants to make sure that the wedding hosts are not going to be embarrassed for running out of wine. Jesus's concern has to do with the will of his father. That's the controlling will in his life. And so it's almost as if he's saying, ma'am, your concern and my concern aren't the same. But Mary entrusts the situation to him in an act of faith. She leaves it in his hands, trusting that whatever he's going to do, whatever he decides is going to be good and right. And it was good and right. Uh, Jesus solved the problem. He solved the lack of wine. But more importantly, he manifested his glory, verse 11 says. Let's keep reading to understand what this miracle was all about. How did he manifest his glory? Just verses 6 and 7. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. This is an important detail in this narrative that we might be tempted to just read right past. There are six stone water jars that are there for the Jewish rites of purification. Jars made from clay or pottery would be unclean, ceremonially unclean, because they were porous. And of course, these these ones made out of limestone would not be. They would remain ceremonially clean. And so they were used as wash basins, huge jars. And devout Jews would dip their hands into that water to cleanse their hands, uh, to, to purify their hands, but really to make themselves pure in order to be engaged in God's service. It was an outward thing, washing the hands, that really was meant to symbolize something that was inward. So the external washing of their body was meant to symbolize an internal moral purity. So to become spiritually clean, not just physically clean, okay? So this is the symbol of this ritual cleansing that was taking place in these giant jars. So it is significant, intentionally significant, that Jesus chooses these jars to be a part of this miracle, this sign. He did not ask the servers simply to refill the empty wine jars they had been previously using. He goes out of his way to use these jars. And so this is, this is intentional. There's meaning here. Drinking wine from jars that would have been used for ritual purification would have sent a very powerful message to those who were paying attention carefully. Something new was happening in the way that God was meeting the need of his people to be purified. Continuing, 8 through 11. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. 
Jesus is doing multiple things here at once. And the first and most obvious thing is that he's satisfying the practical need of these people to have wine. That's the obvious thing. Second, though, he is revealing his identity as the Messiah. And you have to look a little bit harder here to see this. He's revealing his identity as the Messiah. By providing good, rich wine, fine wine, he is illustrating to these people that he is ushering in the messianic age, a time of restoration for God's people. The prophets often spoke of a day of future restoration, the end of the exile, bringing God's people back to their land where they would have uh, grain and fruit of the vine. They would have much fine wine, abundant, rich wine. So it is significant that he uses these stone jars, but it's also significant that he turns this water into wine and not into a hazy IPA and not into Gatorade, but into wine. There's deep symbolism here. So many of the Old Testament prophets speak of this coming day of the Lord that is going to signify the restoration and it's going to be personified and visualized and manifested through flourishing and provision for God's people. Isaiah talks about it. Joel talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. Our call to worship text, Amos, talks about it. Chapter 9, just 13 through 14. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. She's excited. Me too. So with this gift of amazing wine that Jesus is embodying and giving to his people, he's showing a glimpse of that day, that promised day of restoration for God's people that would bring about their flourishing. He is showing that it has begun, at least in part, Not in its fullness yet, but it has begun at least in part. So as the Messiah, he is ushering in this new messianic age of restoration for God's people. But he's also doing a third thing in this passage. There's a third thing, something else. He's also symbolically showing that there is something new happening in the way that God deals with sinful humanity. Something new with the way that God deals with sinful humanity. That old temporary way of outward purification is giving way to something new. It's giving way to something better. The old covenant required ceremonial cleanliness, all these sorts of rituals of physical outward purification, but that outward need for purity was always anticipating and pointing towards a serious need for an inward purity of the heart. It was always about an inward purity of the heart. The prophet spoke of this too. The prophets said that God's Messiah would usher in a new and better covenant, a new and better covenant, a new way of dealing with the problem of human sin, a new way of reconciling a holy God and a sinful humanity. And so this miraculous sign of transforming water into wine is pointing to something much greater, something much greater that matters for you and I this morning. Uh, None of us, I trust, were guests at this wedding. And so we go back and reread this. We think, well, that's great for them. They got wine. Queens, what does that mean for us? And none of us were there, none of us were refreshed, and none of us got to taste how amazing that wine was. That miracle was of no benefit for us. But what that miracle, 
what that sign pointed to is of ultimate importance for us. This miraculous sign of transforming water into wine is of ultimate importance for us. You'll notice as we continue reading throughout John's gospel that Jesus is doing miracles and the word that John uses for these miracles is signs. Signs. Here's how commentator D.A. Carson defines a sign. I think this is helpful for us. A sign is a significant display of power that points beyond itself to the deeper realities that can be perceived with the eyes of faith. These miracles that Jesus is doing are amazing, but they're not just amazing activities to show that he has authority over all creation. They are that. They are that, but they are more than that. They're pointing to greater realities. A sign, by definition and by purpose, points to something else. That's what a sign is meant to do. It's meant to draw attention to something else. So if you see a sign on the freeway that says 101 North, you don't drive into that sign. You drive into the freeway that the sign is pointing you to. That's how you get to your final destination. So a sign is pointing you to something else. And in the same way, Jesus' signs are pointing to something beyond themselves. Don't get caught up in the water and the wine. This is symbolizing something deeper for us. And this is what it is. Jesus' good wine points to a new way of purification for his people. His disciples probably didn't pick that up at the time. But just before Jesus would be arrested, he would share a last supper with his disciples as they're celebrating the Passover meal together. And when Jesus held up a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, we can't help but wonder, did some of those disciples begin to make the connection who were at the wedding at Cana? Where the water of the old covenant became the wine of the new covenant? This first sign meant that Jesus would fulfill the need for ceremonial cleansing with water, with complete spiritual eternal cleansing by his own blood on the cross. O fount, this is the song we just sang before, uh, during the offering. O fount of love, divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side, where sinners trade their filthy rags for his righteousness applied. Mercy, cleansing every stain, now rushing over us like a flood. There, the wretch and vilest ones stand adopted through his blood. The purification that we needed that was temporary for Israel is provided in and through the blood of Christ. Jesus' good wine was pointing to a new way of purification for his people. And that's what happens in the next section of this chapter. It's very much related to this as well. Second, Jesus' resurrection will point to his authority over the temple. His resurrection will point to his authority over the temple Start in verse 12 through 17. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. The pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple 
with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So it's important to note here too as well that this is taking place during the Passover. These small details are not small. Verse 13 He's gone out now from that small rural town of Cana into Capernaum and now into Jerusalem. So he's come to the the capital city, the big city where the temple is at. And being that it is during the time of Passover, there are a lot of people who are crowding the temple courts, Israelites who have been traveling in to make their sacrifices. It would be easier for these folks who have been traveling in from out of town to buy those sacrifices, those animals, easier for them to buy them there in Jerusalem. There were also money changers there. So you could buy the sacrifices, the animals for the sacrifices there in the temple gates. But there are also money changers there. And the money changers were there to help them exchange their currency so that they were able to buy the animals for the sacrifices. And these money changers would add on a service fee in the transaction. I'm sure it's nothing like what we might find from Ticketmaster. But still, at least enough, in some cases, to, to, to add extra fees so that they were making a profit, patting their own pockets on this. And so Jesus arrives at the testimony uh, at the temple, and it looks like a, a fair is happening. There's all these concession stands. It looks like a house of trade. It is completely different from the tone and tenor of what worship is all about. It's transactional. It's not relational. So to fully understand this, the significance here, we have to understand what is a temple anyways? What did the temple mean? What did it stand for? Well, God gave Israel the design for a temple so that it could be the place where his glory would dwell among his people. That was the purpose of the temple, for God's glory to dwell among his people. It was the place that they would go to process uh, this ritual cleaning that would take place. It was a way that they would be able to physically enact their need for atonement for a holy God. So that temple was a gracious gift that God gave to his people where his glory would dwell and he would be able to meet with them. It would be a visual way for the holy God to dwell among an unholy people. It's where his presence, it's where his glory would dwell specially. So that's the purpose of the, the Advent uh, devotional as well, as it turns out. So if you didn't get one of these on the way in, please pick one up on the way out. They're at the welcome desk. 25 days, starting on December 1, a brief devotional for you to trace this theme of the presence of God from Genesis to Revelation. Read through that throughout the month of December to think about what it means especially that the incarnation would be such a blessing. So Jesus comes to the temple and he sees this drastic derailment of the intention of the temple. The original purpose is not being fulfilled. So in order to understand this, you gotta stay with me for a little bit. We need to understand some Old Testament context here. The prophet Malachi at the beginning of chapter three of his book, he spoke of a messenger who had come to prepare the way for God. It's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, 
in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we understand that that first messenger spoken of there is John the Baptist. He is the one who prepares the way for the Lord, right? The second messenger, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, who is coming to his own temple, we understand that to be Jesus. So this is prophesied about even here within the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. The Lord who owns the temple, this messenger of a new covenant, is Jesus. And Malachi says that when that messenger who owns the temple comes to it, he's going to bring judgment against it. He's going to bring judgment and purify and refine the priests and the temple. He's going to bring judgment against their rotten, heartless, transactional worship. And that's what Jesus does here. He drives those who have no concept of purity and for right worship of God from out of the temple. He's alluding to Psalm, or John is alluding to Psalm 69 here. He says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. Alluding to Psalm 69, David, King David had a zeal for the temple, for his father's house. And Jesus now is giving the ultimate fulfillment of that. The worship ultimately is about honoring and fearing God's name. It's not about going through empty motions, not about mere transaction. So Jesus now is bringing the fullest picture of what that means. That prophecy now is taking place. And so let's see how that act of cleansing or acting of judging the temple is being received. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In other words, the religious leaders, the Jews spoken of here, asked him, who exactly do you think you are? How dare you come into God's temple and cleanse it and judge God's temple? What sign, what miracle could you possibly do that would show us that you have authority over God's temple? And Jesus' response is a bit cryptic. Uh, We just have to keep in mind here that when we're speaking of the temple, this is the second temple. The first temple was destroyed in 586. Well, now King Herod has rebuilt the temple, and it took him about 46 years to reconstruct this second temple. And so the religious leaders might be forgiven for not understanding what Jesus is meaning by saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Well, that would be quite a miraculous sign to rebuild a temple that took 46 years in three days. And that would definitely show his authority over the temple. But Jesus wasn't actually speaking about the physical temple He was not speaking about the building, the structure itself. Verse 21 tells us that he was speaking of his own body. Follow me now. The the temple, just like the tabernacle before it, was the place where God's glory dwells. It was the place where heaven would meet earth, if you will. And we've already read in in the prologue that Steve Doobie preached for us that Jesus is himself the embodiment of God's glory. He is God tabernacling amongst us. God took on flesh and tabernacled amongst us in Jesus. He is the true and better temple then in that sense. 
the tabernacle, the temple, all that was pointing, foreshadowing to the fullness of the meaning in Christ. And also we just read at the end of chapter one, as Pastor Stephen preached for us last week, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jacob's vision of that ladder where we have angels ascending and descending, the connection between heaven and earth. Jesus is himself also the fulfillment of that very vision, that picture which happened, that vision that Jacob got at Bethel where Israel's temple sanctuary would eventually be set up. Jesus is what all of that pointed to. So through his own atoning sacrificial death and resurrection, Jesus is going to be the truest possible restoration of what the temple even stood for, a way for a holy God to meet with an unholy people. Jesus is saying that the sign that he was going to give to show that he has authority over the temple in this way was his own bodily resurrection from the dead. Uh, Nobody understood this at the time. Even his own disciples didn't understand it ultimately, until he actually was resurrected from the dead. Verse 22 tells us that very plainly. It wasn't until they had the benefit of hindsight that they'd be able to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. What do you mean by temple? Well, here's what John is desperate for us to understand. Here's why he stacked both of these two events together. It's not accidental. The old covenant structures and institutions Uh, The ritual cleansing, the temple sacrifices were always meant to be temporary. And they always pointed to Jesus. So now that he has started his public ministry, Jesus is both teaching and showing that he is himself what the temple and the sacrifices and the purification pointed to. The need for a better purification and a better sacrifice. Turning water into wine at Cana pointed to his death and resurrection as the only true way of gaining purity. The clearing or judging of the temple pointed to the new and better temple, which is Christ himself. To be near God, we don't need to go to a physical place in order to be in a temple, to be with God. We need to go to Jesus to be in Christ, to be with God. That is now how we draw near to God under this new and better covenant that Christ initiated. So why? Why does John want us to know this? Why do these details matter? Why is John so desperate for us to fully understand who Jesus is? Well, he tells us, remember this foundational memory verse, so that by believing in Jesus, who he truly is and what he's accomplished, that we might believe and have eternal life. This is the point of John's gospel. We don't wanna miss these details. John is giving us what he wants us to know on purpose putting your faith in Jesus for who he truly is and not who you misunderstand him to be or want him to be or wish he was is really the goal. Let's look at the final three verses. Jesus isn't fooled by superficial faith. Verses 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So I mentioned earlier that we're faced with three responses to the person of Christ. 
We have the response of the disciples who believe, they see, they understand, they're growing in their understanding. They've seen him turn the water into wine. They're believing in him as he's cleansing the temple. We get a note here about how they believe that Jesus was the true and better temple after his resurrection. The disciples believed the Old Testament scriptures. They believed that Jesus' own teaching about himself was true and accurate. But we get a second one here, a second picture of a response to Jesus Christ that is very different from the disciples. The second response to Jesus was from those religious leaders, the Jews. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't understand him either. They weren't able to make the connection between the earthly stories he's telling and the spiritual realities behind them. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't understand him, so they resisted him. And we're going to find a lot more examples of that as we continue in John's gospel. But just for now, notice that their faith was non-existent. So the faith of those disciples was real. Although it was growing, it was not complete, it was not comprehensive, it was a faith that was seeking understanding. They were willing to be taught. They wanted to know more. They wanted to come to Christ on his own terms, not their terms. But there's another category that we're shown here, I believe, in the end of chapter two. There are those who saw Jesus' signs and they believed in his name, it says. But verse 24, Jesus knew that their faith was simply founded upon the physical nature of his miraculous signs and he, they didn't understand what those signs pointed to. If you remember when Jesus' first disciples came to him, he asked them right up front, what are you here for? What are you seeking? What are you in this for? He knows that there would be people who would come to him, not because he was the Messiah, but because he was doing these signs, doing these miracles. They weren't coming to him because he was the way of moral purification, because he was the Lamb of God who would take away their sin. They were coming for the wine, not for the blood. And so that's the third group that were mentioned here, I think. They believed that he was powerful. They saw his signs. They're intrigued, they're interested, but they don't understand what that power truly means and what those signs point to. For now, just understand these categories of responses to Jesus. We've got these who are all in, his disciples. We've got others who are all out, those religious leaders. And then we have others who believe, but they haven't really been able to figure out who Jesus truly is yet. The application that we need to come away from this passage is, is this. Which of those categories do you find yourself in? Which of those categories do you fit under? You have the sort of faith that's always seeking more understanding of who Jesus is, trying to know him more relationally, not just transactionally. If you are, you're in a good place. That is the right, that is the response that we are meant to have. That's what John is showing us. If you've got no faith and you don't care and it doesn't bother you, you don't understand and you're actually resistant to learning more about Christ, you should be concerned. You're not in a good place. You should hear this passage landing on you as a warning. Jesus knows what is in us. And Jesus is not fooled by a superficial faith. Those around us might be, but Jesus himself is not. Jesus knows what is in us. 
and he doesn't entrust himself to those who come to him only for his short-term benefits and not as the eternal lamb of God himself. But for those who are intrigued but don't fully understand, keep pursuing Christ. Keep pursuing Christ. It's not going to all make sense at once. And don't be discouraged. If you don't know the, the difference between the big numbers and the small numbers in your Bible, that's okay. Ask somebody. Don't be ashamed. Be willing to learn and to grow. Keep learning. Keep pressing in. Keep asking questions. Keep in Scripture. Keep in prayer. And in so doing, may your trust grow deeply in Jesus who purifies his people and restores pure worship. Praise be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.